And we're going to begin with verse 5 today. It says this, However, to the man who does not work but trusts God, who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited as righteousness. David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. And so Paul tells us this, that not even our trust in God is a work. He says, it's not something that we can even boast about. You can't even boast about your trust in God because even our trust in God is a gift from God. And it's by that trust in God that we are credited as righteous. The fact is, in chapter 11, I'm going to read a little portion of it, he tells us plainly not to boast. He says this, beginning with verse 13, I'm talking to you Gentiles inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles. I make much of my ministry in the hope that I may somehow arouse my own people to envy and save some of them. For if their rejection is reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? If part of the dough offered as first fruits is holy, then the whole batch is holy. If the root is holy, so are the branches. If some of the branches have been broken off, and you, though a wild olive shoot, have been grafted in among the others and share in the nourishing sap from the olive root, do not boast over those branches. You will say then branches were broken off so that I could be grafted in. Granted, but they were broken off because of unbelief. And you stand by faith. Do not be arrogant, but be afraid. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. And so Paul also tells us in the book of Ephesians chapter 2 that we're grafted into Israel through faith. And in Romans 11, he tells us that we stand because of that faith. And then he says that our faith is no boast. And in fact, if we do boast over the natural branches, then we can be cut off. Faith is not a work that you can boast. If you say things like, I don't understand how the Jewish people can't see the Messiah. It's so plain to me. Well, that's a boast. It's as if you're saying you are more enlightened than the Jewish people. Well, Paul warns us against that boast. Because even our faith is not a work that we can boast, but it is a gift from God. And now to prove that, it is by faith that you are declared righteous. He quotes David. In verse 7 he says, Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will never count against him. I want you to notice that David doesn't say, Blessed is the man who's declared righteous by God, but he says, Blessed is the man whose sins are forgiven, the man whose sins do not count against him. Not the same thing really, is it? Now, we have defined sin, or I should say we have sin defined for us by the scriptures. John states it really plainly for us. He says, everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is transgression of the law. So if one could live out his life without transgression of the law, so that he could stand before God one day with no transgressions of the law against him, and he were judged on his own merit alone, would he be righteous? Well, I can tell you this, he'd be Messiah Yeshua. 
because he's the only one who, could do, who did that, and he is righteous. Unfortunately for most, and fortunately for those who trust in Yeshua, there's only one way to accomplish that kind of right standing before God, to stand there without sin, and that's to stand there in faith of the redemption that Yeshua has secured for you. So in essence, David and Paul are seeing the same thing, and that is, blessed is the man whose sin doesn't count against him. David says, and Paul says, we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and the only way to be declared righteous is in Messiah Yeshua. It's the only way. And then in verse 9 he says, is this blessedness only for the circumcised or also the uncircumcised? So now he's going to readdress this thought that we have to be circumcised and live as the Jewish people to be justified. And he says this, and he does this, uh, he says this, does this blessing come to the Jew only, to the circumcised only? Is the only way to be forgiven for your transgressions is to become Jewish? Is it for the Jewish people alone? And we all know the answer to that. Really, it's no. But it's more than no. It's more than just no. And so Paul won't say just no. He's going to answer the question by using Abraham as an example. So he says in verse 10, We have been saying that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. Under what circumstances was it credited? Was it before he was circumcised? Was it after he was circumcised or before? It was not after, but before. Now, we covered this pretty well in weeks past. We have the call of Abraham and the statement that he believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. We have those things happen in chapters 12 through 15 of Genesis. And then 15 or more years later, God gives Abraham the sign of circumcision. This revelation... This is the revelation that is going to form Paul's and the other apostles' understanding of the good news to the Gentiles. Peter had to hear it through the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 10. As God tells him, don't call any man unclean that I made clean. Paul must have heard it similarly. It's not recorded for us. He must have heard it similarly through the Spirit. And what a shock it must have been to have heard it for both of these men. Acts chapter 10 tells us Peter was shocked, and I'm sure Paul was as well. A shock because it went against everything they had ever been taught. And Paul, after hearing it, went and re-examined Scripture and the life of Abraham and found, hey, it's true! Think about it, because this is huge. From the time that they had heard the first words of Scripture, they heard that the descendants of Jacob were God's chosen people. And if you wanted to be one of those chosen people, you had to be grafted into that. They had seen non-Jews convert according to the rabbi's process of conversion to become part of this special people through circumcision. And now the Holy Spirit and scriptures confirm that it's not through this process of the Pharisees, this work of the law done through hands of men, that you stand righteous before God. But it is the same faith in God that this uncircumcised Gentile named Abraham had. To realize that you stand righteous before God through faith in God alone, well, that would have just turned their theology right upside down. 
You can almost hear Paul in his study saying, Now I see it! Eureka! Abraham was uncircumcised when he was declared righteous. It was by faith alone to realize that Abraham, this uncircumcised Gentile, was this uncircumcised Gentile when he was declared righteous was a staggering thought. Because the uncircumcised Gentile was the lowest thing on earth. Listen to what Isaiah chapter 52 verse 1 says. Awake, awake, O Zion, clothe yourself with strength. Put on the garments of splendor of Jerusalem, the holy city. The uncircumcised and defiled will not enter you again. Read what it says about the uncircumcised Gentile in Scripture. David says of Goliath, will we be afraid of this uncircumcised Gentile? And so we begin to see just what a turnabout in their thinking that this would have been. Not to mention that their land was now overrun by uncircumcised wicked men. If Abraham was uncircumcised and declared righteous by faith alone, then it stands that God can declare and give right standing to all who are uncircumcised by faith alone. No need to be circumcised to the Jewish people. No need for works of the law. Just trust in God. However, Paul does add, as I pointed out in weeks past, he does add, then like Abraham, our faith should lead you into keeping the commands of God as it did Abraham. Hence, Paul will say in the book of Ephesians, it is by faith you are saved to do good works. Verse 11 says, he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness of of the faith which he had while he was uncircumcised, so that he might be the father of all those who believe, though they be uncircumcised, so that righteousness might be attributed to them also. And so, as we all are aware, Paul saw Abraham as the father of all who trust in God. We could say all Israel, because remember from last week, all Israel are those who overcome this life by trusting God. You overcome this life one way, by faith, by trusting God. You overcome, as we spoke of last week, by saying, Lord, I'm bankrupt, I can't help myself. You're the only living God. You are my creator, help me. You overcome and become part of Israel as Jacob became Israel. You wrestle with Yeshua and yourself and you lose the wrestling match for control of your life to Yeshua. And then you trust Yeshua to be your guide through life. And if you don't completely understand that, get the CD from last week. But verse 12 says, He was also that he might be the father of the circumcised to those who are not only of the circumcision, but also walk in the steps of that faith of our father Abraham, which he had in the uncircumcision. You see, this is amazing for those who are not Jewish. And it renders credence to what I said last week when discussing those who are chasing after some hope that they're Jewish or one of the lost tribes. You know, they're wasting their time and money on DNA tests and so forth 
According to the gospel, Paul and the disciples preach, and I say the disciples because remember that Peter thought the same thing, and the council decision in Acts chapter 15 shows that the Ruach HaChodesh had shown them as well that Abraham is the father of us all. Those who are related by blood, but more than that, those who are of the same faith as Abraham. To what can we liken it? Well, we've all heard phrases like, he's his father's son. He's a chip off the old block, right? We've all heard things like that. Well, you get those things said, not so much because the father and son are related by blood, because it could just as easily be said of an adopted son as one of blood. The person is not commenting on the relation according to blood, but the fact that the son is emulating the father. He's a chip off the old block. And the true sons of Abraham are those who emulate his behavior. And so we could say, we could look at it as Paul saying, all who believe are a chip off the same old block of the faith of Abraham. Right? Paul is telling us that God ordained, not only that, he tells us that God ordained this specific order in Abraham's life so that Abraham might be the father of all who believe. And that's why he had Abraham fall asleep when he made covenant with him. I want to look at this again. Look at Genesis chapter 15, verse 1. It says, After this, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I'm your shield, your very great reward. Notice what he says here to Abraham. I am your great reward. Well, if you look at the word for reward, it's, it's uh, sakar, and, and it means payment of a contract. Compensation. Hire. Wages. It's his payment. So immediately you ask yourself, well, what, payment for what? Well, you have to back up to chapter 14 to find out. We look in chapter 14, verse 21 through 23. It says, the king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the people and keep the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I've raised my hand to the Lord, the God most high, the creator of heaven and earth, and have taken an oath that I will accept nothing belonging to you, not even a thread or a throng of your sandal, so that it will never be able to say I made Abraham rich. He refused the reward given to him by the king of Sodom, the wealth that was going to be given to him by the king of Sodom, and in faith trusted God for his reward. You see, that's how chapter 14 ends. And then chapter 15 says, After this, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. Abraham, do not be afraid. I am your shield, your very great reward. You see, these chapters and verses sometimes sometimes throw you off because this is really an ongoing story. There should really be no break here. Abraham's reward was for believing God and that alone. He listened to God. He trusted that he would give him everything he needed and that he need not take anything from the king of Sodom. Abraham's reward was for believing God. And what was the reward he received? He received the world to come. We'll look more at that in a moment. But first, listen to what happens next. God makes a promise to Abraham 
of a seed, a son coming from his own body. Not only that, he promises him the land of Israel. Now listen to what he says after that. So the Lord said to him, bring me a heifer, a goat, a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abraham brought all these to him, cut them in two, arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Then birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abraham drove them away. As the sun was setting, Abraham fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. So here they are. They're getting ready to seal the deal. The deal was for a son and for the land of Israel. And what does God do? He puts him to sleep. And then God makes promises to Abraham. He makes some more promises to Abraham while he's sleeping. And then if we skip down to verse 18, it says, On that day, God made covenant with Abram. And what I want you to see is this is not a covenant as we think of a covenant. As we think of a covenant or a contract, it requires that both parties render something of value. Not so here, because Abraham sleeps. And so we would think of this, what? More as a promise than a covenant. And it happens because Abraham believed God. God gives him a promise of a son and land. And that he would be his shield and his reward would be great. And what did Abraham do for this? Did he keep the Torah? No, he believed God. And he rested in that belief and he just slept. Right? How, better, how much better does that get? And what I want you to take away from this today is that he made him a promise of a son. Not if you do this or you do that, I'm going to give you a son. But a promise of a son, unconditional. And the reason is simple. That son is going to help God keep another promise that he had made. You know, God keeps his promises. And there's an important reason, and we're going to get to it in a moment. But first Paul says this in verse 13. For the promise to Abraham or to that or that to his seed that he should be heir of the world was not through the law, but through righteousness of faith. Now, listen, Paul is telling us that the promise to Abraham was that he would be heir to the world. And he can only mean world to come because I don't see him as being heir of the present world. Do you? Where would Paul get that out of that text? Well, let's see what the Targum Yonatan has to say, the Targum Jonathan, because it's a, remember, it's a translation that was, in a, that was around at the time of Paul. And if you're new here today, the Targum is an Aramaic translation from the Hebrew, and the great thing about the Targum is they took great liberty so as to add meaning to the text. And so with this translation, we get an idea of what they thought about this passage in the first century. And we're going to find that the rabbi saw this as Abraham inheriting the world to come. Listen to what it says. This is the Targum Jonathan on Genesis 15.1. A word of the Lord was addressed to Abraham in a vision saying, Fear not, Abram. My memra will be a shield for you. 
And even if these have fallen before you in this world, the reward of your good works is kept and prepared before me for the world to come. A very great reward. I love this because we all know that the memra is an Aramaic word that means the word. And of course, it's a term for the Messiah because he is the word made flesh. And so a couple things here, and they support what I've been saying. First, that we can see within this translation that rabbinic thought of the day was that Abraham was blessed for his good works. Paul, of course, differs with that. He tells us, no, not good works, but it was his faith. And so that's kind of confirmation that we're on the right track as far as what we see Paul combating here, rabbinic thought of the day. But second, and what else he says, and and this is the important part, Paul agrees with what comes next, that the reward is that he is heir to the world to come. In other words, Abraham's reward for his belief is eternal life. That was the thought. And Paul concurs. And notice that he uses the word promise as well. It was a promise. And God doesn't break promises. Abraham did nothing for the promise except trust God for that promise. There were no requirements placed upon him because he slept through the whole process. But it was just a promise given to him because he believed God. And there's a reason... It had to be just a promise. And it's simple. Because God had made an earlier promise. And it's through this son that that earlier promise is going to be fulfilled. That son must be born because he cannot, and he must be for unconditionally, because he cannot make the son dependent on anything Abraham does or does not do. God cannot trust the fulfillment of his earlier promise upon another, not even Abraham. Here's what I mean. Listen to what Ephesians chapter 2. I told you we're going to read this verse a lot. But here's Ephesians chapter 2, 11 and 12. Listen to what it says. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth are called uncircumcision by those who call themselves circumcision that done in the body by the hands of men remember that at that time you were separate from messiah excluded from citizenship in israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope and without god in the world and i want you to notice what it says here you were foreigners to the covenants plural of the promise singular And so what Paul is saying is that there's one promise that's woven through all of the covenants. It's a covenant with Adam. It has a promise. Listen, cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. God's going to send the seed of a woman to crush the adversary of God. And Adam did nothing to inherit this promise. And if we move forward to the days of Noah, we see that the world needs to be destroyed because of the wickedness on the face of the earth. But God has made this unconditional promise to Adam. 
And so he takes a righteous man and saves him out and makes another unconditional covenant with him and the whole earth. Listen to what it says. I'm going to read from the Young's Literal here because they make it so clear. My bow I have given in the cloud, and it hath been for a token of a covenant between me and the earth, and it shall come to pass in my sending a cloud over the earth that the bow shall be seen in the cloud, and I have remembered my covenant which is between me and you and every living creature among all flesh, and the waters become no more a deluge to destroy all flesh. And the bow hath been seen in the cloud, I have seen it, to remember the covenant age during between God and every living creature among all flesh which is on the earth. You see, the same promise, a promise of a redeemer. And the next time that the earth needs to be destroyed, which is very soon, because it's filled with wickedness, God will see the bow in the clouds of heaven and will not destroy the earth. And Jeremiah tells us flat out that the Messiah is the bow and we all know he's coming on the clouds of heaven. Well, then God promises Abraham the world to come and makes covenant with Abraham and he tells him it's through your seed that all nations of the earth will be blessed. And Abraham's seed is the Messiah. The promise continues through Isaac, through Jacob, through Israel at Sinai. God makes covenant with Israel at Sinai. And listen to what it says of the covenant that's made at Sinai in Deuteronomy. The Lord said to me, what they say is good. I will raise up a prophet like you from among their brothers. I will put my words in his mouth and he will tell them everything I command him. And if anyone does not listen to my words that the prophet speaks in my name, I myself will call him to account. And we all know that this prophet, like Moses, is the Messiah. So we see the promise woven into the covenant at Sinai as well. Then God makes a covenant with David. He tells him he will never fail to have one of his sons sit on the throne. Yeshua, the son of David. And we have the new covenant brought about by the fulfillment of this promise. All of the covenants have one major promise woven through them. And that's what Paul speaks of when he says covenants of the promise. Listen to what he says in verse 13. It was not through the law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that they would inherit the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. For if those who live by law are heirs, faith has no value, and the promise is worthless because law brings wrath. And where there is no law, there is no transgression. Notice what he says. If those who live by the law are heirs, in other words, if you could stand before God one day and say, I lived by the Torah you gave Moses, give me the world to come. Then the promise that was first given to Adam, then to Noah, then to Abraham, that there was one who was going to come and redeem man from his sin would be worthless because it wouldn't have been necessary. In other words, if you could get there on your own, there would be no need for this promise. If Adam and Hava could have done it on their own by following the simple instructions given in the Torah, God would have given them the Torah and not a promise. But the point, of course, is they could not because a debt had to be paid, a debt of death. You know, for as long as there has been a Torah, as long as there has been law, 
As long as we have had the law, there have been those who thought and continue to think that living by the Torah will afford you right standing with God, justification with God. That keeping the Torah will cause you to inherit eternal life. The problem is, it can't. And the reason, again, is that is not why it was given. There will always be some point at which even one who does his best to live by the Torah, there will always be some point where you will fall short. And so we learn that the law was given to point out transgression. It was given to make people aware of God's minimum standards of behavior, to tell us the point at which we fail. God gave the Torah to make our unconscious sin conscious sin. If you go to Deuteronomy chapter 28 and read the blessings and the cursings for keeping the Torah or not keeping the Torah, after reading those things, tell me, does it speak anywhere of eternal life? Does it contain a statement, keep these laws and you will inherit the world to come? No. It speaks of the blessings for keeping the commands of God in this life and the cursings for not keeping the commands of God in this life. The Torah speaks of consequences for not keeping the law. It gives a remedy for minor, unintentional transgressions of the law. But nowhere does it ever speak about eternal life for keeping Torah. What the Torah does speak of is the promise that we just spoke of above. Woven through all throughout the word of God, we have a promise of a redeemer sent by God, born of a woman who would be the seed of Abraham, the seed of Isaac, Jacob, Judah, David, born of a virgin, would die and pay the price for your transgressions of the law. And if you accept and believe that promise like Adam, Noah, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and Judah and David and like Daniel, like Isaiah, like Jeremiah and Zechariah, like Matthew, Mark, Luke and John and Paul. Your faith in that promise will make you whole and give you eternal life. You see, the promise does what law cannot. The promise of God cannot fail. And the law shows that you are a failure and you need the promise.